0: We are continuing our message series through the book of Ephesians, where we've been talking about God's grand plan. Um, So his plan for uh, the cosmos, his grand plan for salvation, and his plan for us and how we fit uh, into that. So today we're going to talk about how Jesus has provided a way to unite people who would very much rather be distinct and distant from each other. And so that is a problem that uh, we see echo even through down to our time. Uh, in Jesus' time, he was a part of the, the Jewish faith tradition. He lived in Israel. And in uh, Israel, the Jews followed a set of laws called the Torah. And so it was handed down from Moses, from God to Moses, and then down through the successive generations. And it, it marked how the family of Abraham uh, was called out to be a special, unique people uh, for God, set aside to receive his blessing and his favor, and how they would reflect that then to the rest of the nations of the earth. So they really held this high esteem for the Torah rites and rituals that guided their, their everyday lives, but also their civic engagement and their religious participation. And so It distinguished them from them, uh, Israel, from every other nation on the face of the earth. And in particular, their, their, uh, their, Bordering countries and, and who were often enemies of them, pushing in, uh, going to war, taking land, uh, such and, and so forth. And when they strayed from Torah, when they strayed from the law and, and and broke that covenant, God often spoke through the prophets to call them back to covenant faithfulness, to back to uh, God's protection and His blessing. One of the unintended consequences, though, of Israel holding firm to the law was that it developed a deeply ingrained us versus them mentality. Um, And it really was this dichotomy. It's, we are Jews, you are not. We are blessed by Yahweh, you are not. We know God, we have received His law, you have not. So there's a lot of that us versus them. Uh, and, and we understand why that would be, because God picked them, selected them, uh, specifically and specially to share Himself with in a, a unique way. So for their faith to survive in a hostile world, parents needed to teach their children the worship of Yahweh, why that was special, and why that was different from all the other nations, all the other peoples on the face of the of the earth. So um, they would say, We're Jews. We worship the one true God. The rest of the world are Gentiles. They worship idols and false gods if they worship anything at all besides themselves. So one of the reasons that Jesus was disliked among the religious elite of his day was, they had a very, they thought to themselves, they had a very clear understanding who was in the kingdom, who was blessed by God, and who was rejected, or at least teetering on the border or on the fringe of being rejected by God. And Jesus kept, like, boosting people over the fence to get them in. And that really ticked off the religious elites who were very clear. We're blessed by God. Those, the sick people, the oppressed, the poor people, women, all these people are not as blessed by God we are. And Jesus kept including them. He kept eating with them. He kept uh, uh, inviting himself over to their house and throwing parties at their house. And the religious elite just couldn't figure out why. Why he, if he was a prophet of God, if he was a, a, a mouthpiece piece for God, why he would continue putting himself in the presence of people like prostitutes and tax collectors uh, who and other people of ill repute who, who shouldn't even be talked to or acknowledged, let alone pass the potatoes. Jesus really made the religious elites uncomfortable because he threw wide open the gates to the kingdom of God and they just couldn't understand what he was doing. So uh, you can hear this us versus them dichotomy even play out in the lives of his disciples. He, he, they're going around following him. He's helping um, uh, uh, reteach and, and help them relearn the Torah laws, who's accepted, who's rejected, what that really means and looks like. And so in John 9, uh, verse 1, it says this, As he, Jesus, went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned? This man or his parents? Do you hear that? Who sinned? This guy or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with his saliva, and put it in the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. Uh, This word means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. So again, did you hear that? Who sinned? Who's at fault? Who's to blame? Who screwed up? Who's not under God's, God's uh, protection and favor? Is it him or them? Is it, is it, it's not us because we're with you, but it's them. Their, their lives are broken. Their lives are messed up. Who, who though should we scapegoat and blame and pin this on? Who should we find, uh, uh, who can we find to put all of our anxiety on to remove it from us so that we can place it on them and point the finger and be really comfortable about where we're at? And Jesus says, no, you don't get it. It's neither him nor them. This situation is so that the glory of God can show up. This man can be blessed and restored and, and be welcomed into the kingdom. That us versus them dichotomy, so deeply ingrained in all of us. We in America feel this acutely, acutely. Who's in? Who's out? Who's like us? Who's different? How can we shame? How can we reject? How can we just double down on on our rightness or be in our bubble and, and feel comfortable and good about who we are and who we're with? And in fact, social scientists have been studying the divisiveness of our own culture for a long time and have given languages to the danger we face there have been studies released on what's called the law of group polarization and the research says that the more uh, says the more people group together with others who are only like-minded like they are they become more extreme in their thinking let me say that again the research says the more that people group themselves together with others, with others who are only like-minded, they think alike, they dress alike, they vote alike, they worship alike, they do all the things the same way, the more likely become, they will become extreme. Why is that? It's because if you, if you remove the moderating voices from a discussion, people double down and they start to have groupthink and they think alike and they actually become more polarizing and more extreme. So it's actually to our benefit that we have people among us that don't agree with us. And it absolutely smashes this us versus them mentality because it's just we in that case, right? The 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 those uh, the law of group polarization is a sort of groupthink where you grow more out of touch with how anyone outside the tribe thinks. You even become more threatened by beliefs that contrast with your own. I'm sure we're all thinking of people like that. It's like, oh so and so needs to hear that. no, we need to hear that. We us need to understand why God puts people in our life that we disagree with it 's to make us better and holier and more like Jesus. Jesus was surrounded with people who didn 't get him didn 't understand him and, had, and, and, and were for, he was forced to be in conversation with them to lead him to uh, them to God okay. Uh, group polarization is more more likely to increase rigid rhetoric and cast anyone in another camp as dangerous and as threatening to them. Bill Bishop, in his book, The Big Short, which is, uh, it's not the movie, The Big Short, which was amazing about the, the housing bubble, by the way. But The Big Short was a book, and in it he wrote this. Like-minded, homogenous groups squelch dissent, grow more extreme in their thinking, and ignore evidence that their positions are wrong. As a result, we now live in a giant feedback loop. Hearing our own thoughts about what's right and wrong bounced back to us by the television shows we watch, the newspapers and books we read, the blogs we visit online, the sermons we hear, and the neighborhoods we live in. And I will say, the algorithm, the algorithm is set up to return things that you like to your feed. So what happens is the more time you spend clicking and liking and following, the more it delivers more things to you that you already agree with. And you can get more polarized online just by going on Facebook or Twitter or wherever else every day. As people seek out the social settings they prefer, as they choose the group that makes them feel the most comfortable, the nation grows more politically segregated and the benefit that ought to come with having a variety of opinions is lost to the righteousness that is special entitlement of homogenous groups. So, to be a holistically healthy human adult, let alone a well-functioning society at large, we need people in our lives we don't see eye to eye with. And it's important that we make space to hear other perspectives as we wrestle with plotting a way forward that benefits the common good. But to retreat to our bubbles where everyone dresses like us, votes like us, shops where we shop, is slowly to be radicalized into a life of deeper and deeper ruts. Okay, Now, uh, it's okay to some degree to have a special in-group identification. People join groups to, 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 to have people that they connect with, they have shared interests with, and so on and so forth. We are actually figuring this out with our sons right now. They're to the age where they, they're wanting some differentiation between, uh, them and us. And so we've had many conversations. If you have preteens, you know this, especially teens, I think. Uh, I'll let you know when I get there, but pray for me. Um, but it's, it's awesome. It's lots of fun, and it's lots of like, hey, you can't leave the house wearing that. And it's like, why my friends wear this? And so we have lots of conversations about, hey, well that's fine, but we're on team Ciders, and we represent ourselves. That's how we talk about this. We're on team Ciders. It's okay what other teams do. You're not on their teams though. So there's no pajamas when we go out in public because you you need to look like you meant to to be there on purpose. Okay, <laughs> you've got to comb your hair and you've got to brush your teeth. You've got to wear socks like. You know, and in the winter it's put on a coat for the love of God, but you know, anyway, we just got out of that season. You know what I'm talking about. We're team ciders. It's not we're not any better than anybody but we're different. We have some some values that we hold to. We go to church on Sundays and worship and and we're in community. We do group every week. That's what we do uh, to to uh because we value certain things in our lives. When you're you grow up and you move out and you have your own family, it, you're still going to be team siders, but you're going to have your own way of expressing that and that's perfectly fine. But for us, this is what makes us different. This is what we hold to. Personal hygiene is a must, must, must. For us, okay? (laughs) All the the parents of teens are gonna slip me five bucks for saying that afterwards. (laughs) I also take Venmo and Cash App, okay? Uh, (laughs) um, So it's, it's interesting because in this next section of Ephesians that we're going to get to today, Paul also talks about some of the familial values, what the church is like, God's family is like, and the distinctives that make up the church. It's, uh, this next section is one of the most um, ecclesiological sections. It just means like the study of what the church is, how it came to being, how it expresses itself. It's one of the most ecclesiological sections in, in all of the New Testament, in all of the Bible. So, Paul is about to make three points in this next section. He's going to tell us Gentiles were once disconnected from God. He's going to tell us Jesus has removed all barriers to God. And third, God's family is the new temple. And so let's dive in. We're in chapter 2, verse 11. It'll be up here. You can also activate or turn to in your Bibles. It says, therefore, in light of everything that, that Ben talked about last week, in light of we are God's handiwork, we are his special creation to do good works, in light of that, remember that formerly... You who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, remember that at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenant of promise, without hope, without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you, uh, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So... In the ancient Near East, there was a deep hostility between Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles. Israel focused on her separateness. Uh, passed down, we covered this, uh, according to the law, what made them special and distinct. The worship and the civil uh, laws that they followed to worship God. They knew they were a chosen people, a chosen nation. They were given a unique uh, set of rights and specific commands to make sure they practiced their faith in ways that continued to distinguish them. Parents passed it down to their kids, who passed it down to their kids, and so uh, so on. But there developed a deep hostility that we already talked about between Jews and non-Jews. And in their article on this, Frank Biola and Derwin Gray say, the world of the first century was littered with racism and oppression. In the mind of the first century Jew, Gentiles, those from uh, Africa, Roman, Greek, Syrians, Asians, etc., were created to fuel the fires of hell. What, what a terrible sentence, by the way, but that's, that's really what they thought. When a Jew called a Gentile uncircumcised, he spit it. It was a name of profound contempt. If a Jewish person married a Gentile, the Jewish parents held a funeral service for their child. In their eyes, the child was dead. On the flip side, Gentiles regarded Jews to be subhuman. Historically, the Jews have been an oppressed people living under the thumb of one Gentile nation after another, Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Rome. In all of human history, there has never been so much animosity, hatred, and violence between two groups of people as there has been between the Jew and the Gentile. But alas, in the first century, there emerged a group of people on the planet who transcended this racial hostility. Here was a group of people who saw themselves as members of the same family a people made up of Jews, Gentiles, slaves, free, rich, poor, male, and female. These were the early Christians. The Roman world stood in awe as they saw people who hated each other begin to love one another and do life together in the name of Jesus. Jesus came to fling wide the doors open to God's kingdom, who would believe in him and who would follow him. It no longer mattered where you were born, what family you belonged to, or if you followed the Jewish faith practices or not. His sacrificial death meant that everyone now had access to God through him. This has always been God's plan. It, it sometimes would get lost through, through the footnotes of, of worship of Yahweh, through the Torah, but this was always God's plan to, to welcome in non-Jewish people to be blessed and to be a part of the worship of God. Isaiah 56, verse 6 says this, Foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, and to be his, his servants. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of, of prayer for all nations. So it's not that the Jewish people had to give up being Jewish as they became Christian, as they become uh, Jesus' followers to worship God, but as the the Council of Jerusalem uh, laid out in Acts 15 uh Gentiles didn't have to follow the Jewish faith, tradition, and practices to worship God. Their their worship was accepted through faith in Jesus. This was a monument, like that was the first church council, had to come together because they were set, the early church was Jewish in nature. They were were set on sharing the gospel to the Jews. And then all these Gentiles started getting saved. And they're like, wow, we have a problem. We don't know what to do with all these non-Jewish people. Let's make them Jews. And the Gentiles were like, no, thank you at all to that stuff. And so Paul and Barnabas and the, and the rest of the early apostolic troop that were planting churches, they were like, hey, they're receiving the Holy Spirit without Torah. We think that's okay. We didn't make that decision. The Holy Spirit just decided for us. And so the early church said, okay, this is open to everyone who could, would call in the name of Jesus. In fact, one of the early messages from the council of Jerusalem, the first church council to figure this stuff out was we determine that we shall not make it hard for people who are turning to God. We don't want to add any rules or regulations that would turn people off from Jesus. We just want to welcome them in as is. And that continues. And that—that that is really the heartbeat of Mosaic is that we can't make it hard for people who are turning to God or turning back to God, who are giving church or God or, or religion or whatever it is, one last shot. We cannot make it hard. All we need to do is make it about Jesus and let him figure out the rest. So Ephesians uh, verse 14 uh, uh, continues on. Paul continues and he says, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new human. This is God's grand plan right here. If you want to know what his secret plan from the ages past, what he wanted to do starting with Adam and Eve and all of creation, it was his purpose to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. The Gentiles who were, who were disconnected to God. Peace. Shalom be to you. Those who were near, those who were in the Jewish family, peace to you, come near through Jesus. He came and preached peace. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. So Paul is saying that both Jews and non-Jews are now full members of God's family. It's not because of anything that we've done. It's only because of what's been done for us. We've been welcomed by Jesus. Jesus has taken what looks like won't fit together Two groups deeply at odds and brought them together. Not just as acquaintances, not just as distant cousins, but tight-knit family. Because he's broken down every single wall of hostility that would keep us away. Now, notice Paul uses the word peace quite a bit in this particular section. Peace is an important concept. It's an important word for peace. Klein Snodgrass, in his comment... By the way, if your name is Klein Snodgrass, you're pretty much guaranteed to be a biblical scholar and write commentaries. His commentary on Ephesians. I'm sure he's a great guy. I don't know him at all. Peace is a central and fundamental component of Paul's theology. Virtually every topic of doctrinal significance is brought into relation to peace. With such varied use, it is not surprising that Paul summarizes the gospel... By saying, he, Christ, is our peace. Peace is not merely the cessation of hostility. It's a comprehensive term for salvation and life with God. The background to this use is the Old Testament concept of shalom, which covers wholeness, physical well-being, prosperity, security, good relations, and integrity. Shalom is much more positive than merely the absence of conflict. It refers to the way life should be and is a gift from God that is received only in his presence. In various texts, shalom is equated with righteousness, justice, salvation, and the reign of God. Yahweh is peace, Judges 6.24, makes a covenant of peace with his people and promises one will bring peace. Peace is what God wills for his people and can be seen in the great prophecies about the future. So so Jesus has come. Not to just bring peace, not to just stop wars and, and, and help people get along, but Jesus himself is our peace. He is shalom embodied. He releases to those who follow him righteousness, wholeness, fulfillment, goodwill. He releases it to us and through us to others. That's why Abraham was called to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, That's why he was the the founding father of the Jewish faith. His family was to to extend shalom to the rest of planet earth. And and, and it's through his family that Jesus the Messiah has come. And so uh, this concept of peace, you'll see it all throughout Paul's writing. And it's not like we see it as like, can we just get along and not have some war? And it's this pregnant phrase that means so much to the Jewish faith. And Paul says, Jesus, he is our peace. It's, he's everything we've been looking for, for, for fulfillment and flourishing in this human existence we call life. Okay? He continues. One final thought. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So if you could imagine setting out on a new project, like you and your spouse want to build a house from the ground up, right? And so you get everybody involved that needs to be involved, the architects and the contractors. And you, you want the best building materials that your budget could possibly afford, right? You want all the, the best lumber. You don't want warped wood. You want the, the, the most upgraded, eco-friendly HVAC systems, right? You want windows that you can get tax breaks on, right? That, like, that's what you want. But Jesus... Jesus does it another way. Well, well, we're worried about, you know, what what fancy nickel-plated doorknobs and drawer pulls we might get that fits like our Scandinavian mid-century mod aesthetic. I don't even know that that's it anymore. You know, you're pulling your shiplap down because, like, you're trying to do the Yellowstone-Dutton vibe now or whatever it is. Jesus does it very differently. Instead of the best building materials, because he's the the most resourced person in, in creation, in existence, in human history, right? He's God in the flesh. He could get the best of the best. He knows to where to mine all the stuff, to build all the stuff and get all the stuff. Instead, what Paul says is, no, Jesus builds, but he builds with people. He builds with crooked wood. He builds with weak and, and broken planks. He's the cornerstone. He's the one by which everything else is plumbed and lined up towards. And what he says is, no matter where, what your condition is, Measure yourself against me, and I'll fill in all those gaps. I'll fill fill all the plumb line that needs to be filled. It's it's quite an astounding thing when you think about it. because Our our desire is to build the best, to be the best, to show off as the best. And Jesus goes, you can come as you are. You're not the best, but I'm the best. And that's the whole point. I'm the best because you never could measure up. And he welcomes us to find our place in his family. And it's in his family. This, this is tremendous. The, the temple was a building centered in Jerusalem. They had all the finest, like Solomon and David raised all the money and, 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 and got all the resources to build this, this wonder of the world, right? But it was centered in Jerusalem. You had to travel to Israel and worship. If you wanted to worship Yahweh and be near his presence, and you had to be certain amounts of distance away from the presence, but you definitely had to go on a pilgrimage to be there. And Paul says, you know that temple, the the, the geo-specific place that people would have to travel to? There's good news because now the church, the church is the temple. God's Spirit no longer lives behind walls constructed with human hands. He lives in every human heart that would believe on the name of Jesus. The church, you and me together, with all of the other saints, all all throughout time and history and space, we are are the new temple, not built with human hands, but made in the flesh and redeemed by the blood of Jesus, by the sacrificial death and, and by the resurrection of Jesus. Like this is something that that would have blown the the Jews' minds. They had no idea this was on. Like they're like Paul is writing around near when the temple is destroyed. There's a lot of heartbrokenness about uh, where to worship God, and and Paul is saying, guess what? You don't you Gentiles. I know Jerusalem was probably never on your radar, but if it was, you don't have to travel there to worship God. You get to worship Him every time you gather, where two or three uh, are, are gathered in Jesus' name. He's there. He's there among you and with you. The church is God's new temple, freed from national borders and cultural requirements. And, and as I've said, it's not that Jews had to stop being Jews. It's just that everyone else from their culture, every nation, tribe, and tongue can bring their own culture and, 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 and way of dressing, and they can enter into God's presence and worship him. Okay? We're all welcomed equally to worship and to serve God. Lynn Kohek, in her letter to the Ephesians commentary, says this, Jews, including Paul, established identity as the holy people of God through practices such as circumcision, adherence to food laws, and Sabbath rest. Now, Paul declares, identity is rooted in Christ, and the new people of God are united around his gospel. The household of God shares one spirit, but need not share a single language or culture. Indeed, the wise and simple, the, the rich and poor, the slave and free labels assigned by the wider culture take on different importance in Christ's body. The wisdom of this age, the wealth of this world, the political power of those who possess it all have status similar to that or the, to the slave or impoverished free man and woman in Christ. Said another way, each person has equal worth in God's eyes through Christ. The craving today underpinning much of identity politics finds its peace in Christ, who affirms cultural and ethnic differences, even as he sets these realities on the solid rock of his own redemption and reconciling work on the cross. So, Paul has said three things. To summarize, God now welcomes those separated from him to be joined to Jesus in his new community where everyone is equal and united by his spirit. So, here's the reality, though. The church... The worldwide body of believers in Jesus have a rocky history, have a rocky past when it comes to proclaiming the shalom of of Christ. We have a rocky past when it's come to proclaiming the the ending of hostility and the dividing wall that has now been abolished and done away with between people groups. We don't have a great track record. It's one thing to say that we're equal and united. It's quite another thing to live it out. N.T. Wright says this in, And his book, Uh, today's church may no longer face the question of integration of Jew and Gentile into a single family, though there are places where that is still a major issue. But we face quite urgently the question which Paul would insist on as a major priority. If our churches are still divided in any way along racial or cultural lines, he would say that our gospel, our very grasp of the meaning of Jesus' death, is called into question. How long will it be before those who claim to follow Jesus— Not least those who claim to also love Paul's thinking come to terms with the demands he actually makes. So I I just want to mention, I think there, I want to mention today, and this is far from exhaustive, but I want to mention three ways in which Jesus' shalom, his his peace should affect us, okay? I want to talk about our relationships. I want to talk about the church. And I want to talk tangentially, but I think equally important, about ourselves. okay? So first, the relationships, In our lives, right the interactions that we have on an interpersonal level and even those on social media and in uh, uh, civic engagement or in society at large, think about the things that are most likely to divide us. And why is that? Why are we divided if Christ is our peace? If, If we're really pointed to Jesus and he is releasing shalom in us and through us, Why do we still experience hostility towards one another? Why is there racial hostility that we still see play out in the news? Why why is there political hostility? I mean, the other hostilities seem silly when you compare it to the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. I mean, first, the dividing wall between God and humanity, right? That Jesus addressed and tore down. And next, he then turned to the dividing wall between people groups, and he tore that down. So, doesn't it kind of seem silly, the debates that we get in? I mean, sports teams like have a place, but like we get angry, right? Is it, is it Golden State or the Lakers? Who's going all the way or the Knicks or who is it? And we have big feelings. I hear big feelings back there somewhere. We have big feelings about these things. Like people get violent over identifying with their sports teams. I mean, think about, think about the debates that are going on even right now about public school versus private school versus homeschool. There's big feelings about education for our kids, and we are to, to the point of violence on several of these topics. Why? Why is that? These are important issues. I mean, sports is important, and then it's not. I'll just be honest, but I like it. I like it anyway, but we've got to right-size some of these things because it's literally blocking our peace. The peace that we can receive from Jesus and the peace that we can then turn and give to other people. Why is it it that there's such division between rural versus urban versus suburban living? There's big thoughts and big feelings about all that. Star Wars versus Star Trek. There's big feelings about, maybe not as big feelings. May the fourth be with you, by the way. Um, but there's big feelings about these things that divide us. We allow to divide us. In fact, uh, Sarah and I, for a long time, have tried to help people when it comes, we'll get to church here. Well, I guess we'll get to church now. We, we, uh, <laughs> We've really tried hard to help people understand the differences in doctrine and how, and the, the level of importance and attention we should give to these different things. So we we oftentimes we'll talk about blood doctrine. Like blood doctrine is those are the closed fisted Like these are the essential doctrines of Christianity. People have died to, uh, for their faith over these issues. So that's that's not a lot of issues. It still happens. There are still a lot of martyrs around the world today. But it's very clear, it's the creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, who Jesus is, the fact that there is a God, uh, humanity has sinned and is disconnected from him. We need repentance and, and faith in Jesus to be restored. Like Those are, those are everyone everywhere have, have believed in those things, and those are essential. There's then the, what we call the pen doctrines. Those are more of the distinctives, like de, uh, denominations form around these things. And that's okay. Like some distinctives, like I mentioned earlier about Team Siders versus whatever team y'all are on, uh, those are okay to have familial distinctives. And it's okay for churches to have distinctives as well. It's, It's things like how to baptize, right? Do we do confessional baptism of adults or believers? Or do we baptize babies as a sign of the covenant? Like that's okay to get that theology worked out. But people who disagree with you over those points of theology still Love and, and trust in Jesus. We can't say that they're heretics just because the timing of the rapture, they believe it's different than you think it is. Or six days creation, literal. We're Adam and Eve, literal human beings. Uh, it's even things like like we hold some distinctives really near and dear to our heart at Mosaic, like women in ministry. Uh, we believe that women have uh, access based on calling and gifting to every level of leadership. Not ever believes everyone believes that. There are people here that don't even necessarily believe that and what we're doing is we're holding tight-fisted, close-fisted to the blood doctrine, the pen doctrine we're a little bit more open-handed, and then the pencil doctrine is stuff that no one anywhere should ever argue about, but churches divide over this stuff all the time. Like color carpet or, you know, what the pastor should wear while he or she is preaching. Things like that of like those are that's not really doctrine, that's just opinion that, that you've, uh, you know, fooled into thinking is doctrine. So it's really important that we understand that there's okay to agree to disagree about different things. There are some things we should be on the same page about because we don't want to unnecessarily divide over secondary or tertiary issues, is my big point. And I'll say this, recent data is showing that there's a tremendous amount of people who are leaving church not because um, of doctrine, not because of uh, a style or substance like changed, it's because politics has infiltrated every level of society. And so that this is actually, you remember I referenced a book called The, the, the Big Sort. This is actually called The Great Sort. Uh, church missiologists have studied this, that people are more likely right now today to change uh, churches uh, over political affiliation than they are doctrine. Is that interesting? Like there'll, there'll be a book that even comes out and, and elaborates this. Uh, it, they did some research that said, yes, people leave church because of church hurts, Harm and abuse. Yes, people leave church because they deconstruct and they question, but by and large, it's because politics has created such a powder keg environment. And churches, it's easier to grow a big church right now if you believe certain things politically, because you can be about certain issues and just rally around those. But it's more likely to do that you do that than around the person and work of Jesus. So we as a church need to understand we will not divide over politics. But we will also preach about politics. Because Jesus is Lord is a very politically loaded statement. When we say that Jesus is king and will rule the nations, that ought to make presidents, newly coronated kings, and all sorts of people really nervous. Jesus is king and Caesar is not is a political statement. And how that works through in our everyday life, there, are, there is nuance and there are differences, but we ought to be able to handle that because Jesus is our peace. He has broken down the dividing wall of hostility between Democrats and Republicans, between Bernie Sanders and and Donald Trump, between every people at every level. Jesus has offered to be peace and to break down that wall. So we, we get to venture in the uncomfortable middle where there are people who are on the right who are our church, and there are people who are on the left at our church, and we love it. It is hard, and it is messy, but we would rather have people who 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 don't think all the same way because we become, remember, a healthier, holistically healthier church when, when we sit across from coffee or communion and partake of that with people who disagree with us. We won't become radicalized. We won't let politics be the gathering factor of why we are a church. It will be all about Jesus and it will be messy every step of the way. Okay. And then thirdly, I, I want to, um, I want to take a little liberty to just say, um, like self, how are selves? are impacted by Jesus being our shalom is really important. So someone came to Jesus and said, Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Like if you could just sum it up for me, make sure I'm practicing that, what would it be? And he said, that's a great question. The first and great commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So sin has fragmented us. It has fractured us as humanity, and it has fragmented us. So that Jesus came, yes, to to take down that wall between us and God and us and each other. But Jesus has also stepped into the mess of our lives to help unfragment us so we could be our true selves as he's created us to be. So Jesus being our shalom is really important for us to get around like our hearts around. I, I praise God for things like counseling and therapy, integrated with a holistic spirituality that says there is truth in all these fields and God can use them to reintegrate us, to make us a whole person once again. Okay. So the, the, question, the, the question that this week that I just kind of floated to the top of my heart was where is home for you? Like not just where do you live, but where is home? Where do you feel the most like yourself? Where do you feel the most rested, and relaxed because what Jesus has meant to do his grand plan for human history is to create a community a family called the church that is your home like our home primarily is in God but that is always expressed through how we treat other people how we live amongst each other so God has wanted to create a home not just for himself, that's what it means that we are his temple, is that we are we are the place that hosts his presence. He is present among us. But it's also a place where we can be our most self in his presence. One of the, one of the top human desires is to be without shame in the presence of someone else. That's what intimacy means. It's into me see. Now I know when I say this that we, we have to just acknowledge church is messy for a whole host of reasons. You may be someone that has experienced or is experiencing church hurt. You may have experienced harm and abuse. And so saying that Jesus means for us to be so connected to a, a church family, a church community that you feel like your most self when you're there with them is quite a stretch, I would say, for almost all of us, including myself. But that's Jesus' intent. We will spend all of eternity fellowshipping, worshipping, spending time in God's presence, and we will do it together. So what I will say is, yes, self is impacted by God's shalom, and we have a lot of work to do to get there. Those two things can be equally true at the same time. Okay, But it does remind me these three things, how how God's shalom shows up in relationships, in the church, and then in our own selves. It reminds me of the story of uh, Archbishop Desmond Tutu. In 1995, he led the way in South Africa uh, to, uh, through apartheid and, and the fallout and how to repair the nation. Uh, apartheid was just this, this very like, horrible, damaging separation between uh, racial groups. And Desmond Tutu was was tasked with how to bring the nation back together to heal it so that they could move forward after the onslaught of violence that happened. Uh, So he commissioned, he he was actually uh, a part of the commissioning of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. The commission aimed to address the human rights abuses committed by all parties involved in the conflict. Uh, It involved uh, the apartheid government, liberation movements, and other individuals and groups. And what it did was provide a forum for, for victims to share their experience and provide an opportunity for perpetrators to confess, confess their crimes and offer restitution. The commission also aimed to establish an accurate history record, a historical record of the violations. So they, they met not in a military tribunal just, to, just to, for quick justice, but they actually did a deep dive. They, they did a biopsy. on on why their culture was sick, what led to this, who did what atrocities, and they recorded it for time in history. What this did was um, they wanted to to approach this with truth, not just expediency. Oftentimes, because we're so uncomfortable with violence, uh, uh, with with segregation and discrimination, we want there to be quick justice. And it's usually when we say justice, it's it's a vengeance. We want somebody somewhere to come along and exercise vengeance against the perpetrators. But they didn't want to do that. They wanted to actually set people and groups across from those that they had pressed for the oppressors to share the stories of what, they had, what, what had been happened to them, the family members that they had lost who had died because of this. And they wanted the perpetrators to hear the stories and offer a confession and ask for forgiveness. They wanted truth and reconciliation. And so it was a slow process where they work through this, and and oftentimes, as people were were able to, they did offer forgiveness towards these perpetrators. The the it was a slow process, and it, it really did move at the speed of forgiveness and rebuilding trust between these two groups that had been at odds. Many times, we like to sweep the stuff under the rug so we can get get on. Or usually, there's some kind of payout or payoff so that we can just bury the uncomfortable truth and move on. And Desmond Tutu. He said, no, we need a deep dive on what is making us sick. That's the only way for us to ever get healthy. And it's only going to happen if we bring down this wall and if humans sit across from other humans and we take away this hostility. So uh, with that, I want to invite the worship team up. And I invite you to stand as well. We're going um, to invite the Salisbury's to, to uh, be our communion servers. So we have, we, we have been doing two things throughout this series and for a long time. I want to give you one one piece of practice, one piece of of, uh, a question that you can land on and have on your heart this week, and that's this. How can I actively be involved in removing barriers? How can I be involved in the places and the people around me and removing barriers that have been erected between people and between groups? So I'll invite you to sit with that. And as we end, we uh, practice communion, here during the last few, few message series. Uh, all that we ask, you don't have to be a member here, but all that we ask is that you're in a right relationship with God through Jesus and a right relationship with others in the body of Christ, in the church. And we invite you to come uh, in a moment when the worship starts down this middle aisle and uh, you can tear off a piece of bread and dip it in the cup. There's also a, a gluten-free option here in the middle uh, that you're welcome to uh, take as well. So together what we do is we say uh, the Lord's Prayer to uh, begin communion, our time of communion. So if you would say this with me. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Amen. This teaching was recorded by Mosaic Church in Manhattan, Kansas where we're uniting people in the way of Jesus. For more resources like this, visit mosaicmhk.com.